Welcome back to our growing experiment. We're here with Melanie DeBagira from Bear Necessities in Sudbury. So Melanie does survival bushcraft and she's here to talk to us about that. So Melanie, why don't you give us a little introduction of yourself and what you do? Hi, um, I'm Melanie DeBagira and uh, right now I'm uh, kind of in my uh, sophomore teaching experience with uh, bushcraft and survival. Um, I have a few groups that I that I teach, um, one of which is a, a homeschool group where there are kids from about 7 to 12 and uh, they it's their version of scouts so they've engaged me to do uh, my lessons for them in introductory so basically the five c's which are i'll explain in a bit but um that's what i've been doing lately and i i really my goal is to get into the schools i would really love to bring this to to kids all over because i i think that um social media and screen time has really taken over a lot of our kids time and i think it uh, it can be positive but i think there's some detrimental stuff there that happens and uh i think getting outside and bringing kids back to nature would really benefit them yeah so i grew up in timmins on 80 acres uh, my parents we had um we lived kind of like that life the the prepper slash farm uh, uh, we had geese chickens rabbits that kind of stuff and my dad built our own homes log homes that kind of stuff I used to fly with him all up the coast of the James and the Hudson's Bay all the way from Timmins to Greenland and so I had a, a very lucky childhood and uh, I moved up to Toronto or down to Toronto uh, in my 20s and uh, then I got sick with cancer, moved up to Sudbury where my parents uh, lived. And uh, from 29 on, I've been, um, I got introduced to prepping from a, a Mormon uh, family that uh, I became close with. And it just snowballed from there. Once I, I tend to be a, a researcher, so I dig and dig. And when I get a passion, I just go for it. So not only did I get into the prepping, I started learning about um, wilderness skills more more in depth than what I had as a child. Uh, more primitive, learning how to do a bow drill, uh, friction fire. Um, and I went about 13 years uh, learning just as much as I could and practicing. And along with that, I also got... Uh, some education from the ultralight backpacking community because I have a I have a back problem so I can't carry a whole lot of weight so I learned how to really trim down the weight and be able to still function with everything that I needed through them um, I mean there's a lot more but that kind of gives you a bit of a picture of uh, I, I I do mushroom for um, mushroom picking uh, foraging um, I, you know, there's a, there's a whole uh, almost like spider web of things that that grow out from these, as as you well know, from these skills. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 
what like when when you uh, how how did you end up meeting that uh, Mormon family that uh, ended up teaching you these skills and like how how when you got started what was that like getting started and like okay so the um, the Mormon family was actually um, a next door neighbor of mine and uh, they as part of um, their extracurricular activities with the church uh, they invited me to church and um, they actually have almost like committees or, uh, you know, the women get together and they learn different skills. And um, she had invited me and they, they generally, um, they prepare for emergencies. So um, they always have like a, a prepping pantry where they have a rolling, like, I'm not saying every Mormon family does this, but it is generally advised and um they they follow this where they have about three months worth of food in in a section you know a prepper pantry where they've got shelves and um, they rotate through it so that it's always uh current food so it's not just like they put away three years worth of food and forget about it they're they're rotating through and i thought that was really smart um and then she was preparing these um little cook stoves where you take a uh, a tin can wrap the I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen this, put the cardboard uh, tightly in there, fill it with um, wax, and then you can use it as a, as a cook stove for boiling water or whatever it is you will. And um, that piqued my interest. And I had, I believe around the same time, I was following uh, a gentleman called Dave Canterbury. Uh, and he is the bushcraft survival guru basically <laughs> he was on a loan and and uh he has a school down in ohio and uh he was he was the only one who actually had a video to show me how to do uh friction fire um because that's that kind of cook thing kind of sp sprung me into okay, well, what if we don't have cans? What if we don't, you know, I wanted to go a little bit deeper into primitive uh, stuff. So uh, I really, really wanted to learn how to, how to do friction fire. And it, it took me months uh, because there's, there was no instruction here back then um, that I knew of. And so I learned online and he was the only one who had a video start to finish. A lot of um, the people at the time would would do the bowing would do you know the starting and then all of a sudden you'd you'd go to flame and it's like there's a bit of stuff that happens in between there that's pretty technical mm -hmm. so he was the only one who had it start to finish and it made it possible for me to actually accomplish it and uh i i, I walked around with a grin on my face for an entire week after i got my first uh ember from friction fire yeah it's uh, i'll never forget it i actually happened to have videotaped it it's in, it's in my google video somewhere but that's yeah that's something that i'm i'll never forget and every time, every time you do it, it's still like, oh my God, I just spun a stick and, you know, made an ember and blew it to flame. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. And I mean, like really what, that's a pretty minimalist way to go too. So I mean, like if you need to do a bow drill, like let's say we, we have to drop you off in the forest and you need to make a bow drill friction fire. What do you really need to have on you that you can't just find? 
I think that really depends on your skill level. Um, there, there, there is a way to do it with nothing. You, but you'd have to go find your your rock and be able to um, nap it, as we say. So to break it in a way that you would get a hard edge, uh, and that's your number one tool is your cutting tool. So as I was mentioning earlier, your five C's are kind of your, your critical things that are really difficult to recreate in nature. So if I'm talking about um, my, my knife, for instance, um, you, you want something that's a full tang knife. Uh, it, you want it to be able to have a sharp spine so that you can, um, let's say you were going to find a piece of flint which we don't really have here we would be using quartz instead but to be able to create a spark off your knife if you had to but let's say we're doing bow drill um so to be able to find the rock and nap it is it's a skill like it's you know that's right primitive um so your cutting tool which is the other one of the five c's is your number one tool that if you're gonna go if you have the skills of course and if you're going to go into the woods, your cutting tool is your number one that you want to have. Because from there, uh, you're going to also need to make cordage. Um, and there's many plants out there that you can actually make quite good cordage from. Uh, I happen to adore the milkweed plant because it provides, it's so versatile. It provides uh, food, it uh, provides cordage. It provides insulation. Um, there, there's, I have a whole talk on milkweed, <laughs> but anyways, uh, from the milkweed plant, we can um, we can make cordage for the bow part of the bow drill. I've got about. I'm a little obsessive, so I made 40 feet of it. Um, and those who know how to make cordage look at me and go, "You must have a lot of time on your hands." <laughs> but that and that's exactly the point, right? Everything that you need to do um, primitively takes quite a bit of time. So if I'm sitting here making this cordage, uh, you know, it'll take me a few minutes to make, uh, uh, you know, three, four inches. I mean, you get faster and you get better as you do it. But again, how much time do you have when you're starving, when you're freezing, those kinds of things. So ideally, um, the five things you're going to have is your, your blade, your cutting tool, uh, your cordage, um, your container. So, you know, the primitive way of doing a container is either burning out a bowl out of a piece of wood, or you would find, um, you would dig a hole, uh, line it with leaves, put your water in there, use hot rocks to boil it in, you know, so these are very difficult things, uh, to accomplish. I mean, digging a hole and putting leaves in it isn't difficult, but you know, then you have to find hot rocks, put them in the heat, boil your water, and then you've got like kind of dirty, leafy water. It's gonna be, it's gonna be safe, but so that's why you would want um, a container. And typically, you want a single-walled uh, stainless steel metal container of some sort, right? So, little pot, for instance. Um, I have all different kinds of cook kits, but a lot of people will recognize these types of pots where you have the top and the bottom, but you know, anything like that. Um, a metal canteen, 
so we have cutting tool, cordage, container, uh, cover. So you want to be able to get out of the elements. So we have, uh, first of all, your cover starts with your clothes. You want to be properly dressed for the circumstances. My winter kit is a lot heavier than my summer kit. Um, wool blankets are great because they, they can double as uh, your poncho. You can use them as hammocks if you have proper cordage. Um, you can tie them almost as tarps. Wool blankets are... Uh, they can hold 80% of their water and still keep you warm, you know, 80% uh, of their water. They can be 80% soaked and still keep you warm, you know. <laughs> so wool is a, is a huge one for outdoors, especially in the cooler temperatures. I wear wool socks all summer long because not only is it um, warm, but it also keeps you clean. Uh, right now, our wool is like merino wool is heads and tails above what I used to use as a kid, right? The itchy scratchy. So they've, they've really come a long way and, um, cutting tool, container, cover, cordage. Um, I'm under pressure, so I'm drawing a blank. Excuse me. No, it's all good. <laughs> I'm sure it'll come to you. <laughs> Cutting tool, cordage, cover, container, and combustion device. So uh, most of us carry uh, a ferro rod, which is uh, not quite at hand right now, but you may have seen the um, They're like, people call them metal matches, uh, ferrocerium rods, where you have a striker and it's, people, some people call them flint and steel, but it's not. It's a modern version. It's the same thing that's in your uh, Bic lighter, but just a bigger version, and you use it to make sparks to start your fire. So that you wouldn't need if you were going to make a bow drill, because you wouldn't need the bow drill if you had <laughs> your combustion device, right? right? So... Um, those are the five C's, but you would need, you know, uh, your cutting tool and uh, to make primitive fire, you know, your bow drill, cutting tools, pretty much all you would need, unless you want to bring your cordage, right? Making cordage takes time, so you want to bring a paracord, bank line, you know, pretty much anything will do if you're stuck. So your shoelace, that kind of thing. Yeah, so you can pretty much, as long as you said, like, that knife, that's, that. I mean, that must have been such a thing for people to figure out. I mean, because I, I imagine the first thing you're talking about has got to be basically a broken, sharp rock, and then maybe you figure out, attach that to uh, a good-sized stick, and now you got something that, like, looks like an old axe, and if you got, like, a good, sharp one you can use in your hand and kind of work with that, but... Even if you got that, that's slow going, that's slow working. If you got a nice steel blade, like I imagine with you, like the, the blade that you had there, like you've probably went through a few and probably figured out like this is this is the one I like, right? Yeah, um, I was very, very lucky to have the instruction of, uh, you know, others before me. And um, there's, there's really a... Um, almost like a formula for what you want as a belt knife for, for outdoors, right? So typically, uh, we'll, we'll just use, this is my brand new knife, I just got it today. Uh, it was custom made by one of the path, 
Pathfinder instructors. His name is Tony Powers. Um, so he's he's gotten into knife making, and uh, just just give him a little bit there. That's his insignia. I don't know if you can see it. A little cat yeah. of some sort. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm really stoked because this is the first Hellcat that he created, and uh, it's got these. Um, I don't know if you can see, but almost like reddish in the wood. It's Corellian birch. But uh, the, the the biggest part is that it's a full tang knife, right? The blade goes all the way through the whole knife um, because you'll you'll need to baton uh, your wood to be able to get through it. Because if you don't have an axe, you need to be able to process wood. So batoning is essentially, you know, if you have your piece of wood like this and you want to split it, you're going to put your piece of wood like this and then take another piece of wood and bang it through, right? And that allows you to process all different things, create a mallet so that you have something to use as a hammer, as a baton, all different ways. Um, typically, your, your knife doesn't need to be much bigger than the width of your palm. So this one's a little bit longer, but um, design gives it a... A pretty substantial point um, you know you you just want something that's not gonna break mm -hmm. <laughs> so boltang being pretty critical and as I, as I said earlier um, a 90 degree spine so a lot of knives will have like a rounded back you want it sharp so that you can take away the ferrocerium cerium rod material uh, to be able to shower sparks onto you know whatever it is you're you're starting yeah because you're like maximizing the friction there if you got that rounded edge it's going to kind of glide on there it's not going to throw you a lot of sparks i would imagine exactly like most most uh ferro rods have a little striker of some sort and you're they're usually substandard but uh yeah that's why your belt knife is you know good belt knife will give you what you need to get that material off all right, so when it comes to survival bushcraft, it sounds like the five C's, you really want to have a bag of that in your house in case something kind of happens. And you mentioned, I, sorry, go ahead. You can pretty much carry the five C's in your pockets. You know, like they they make tiny little tarps. Um, you know, like I mentioned a wool blanket, but oftentimes uh, we, have, uh, a five, we have a five by seven tarp that fits into, I don't know, probably fit in this container just about um so you can like literally slide it into one of your your leg pockets and then you've got your belt knife on your belt you have your ferro rod you know a lot of people attach uh their ferro rod to their knife sheaths um or put it in your pocket uh, i always have a piece of cordage in my pocket you know you have all different types i got a bunch of paracord pieces here uh you can even use micro cord it's smaller so literally right now that's four out of the five c's and then really you could use a plastic bag as a container you don't want to but you kind of have a modified version so this is what i mean by everything is based on your skill level right, right? your biggest toolbox is right here so it, it's it's such an amazing um, uh, field of study, hobby, um, because you've got so many different levels, you know, 
and and there's always something to learn even the masters are still you know learning yeah it sounds like instead of the checklist it's really just understanding what everything gives you and then what you have at hand right a hundred percent and and uh like i said um the the um the experts even will say you know start off with stuff you have in your home because there's all kinds of there's a whole industry on um on gear in the bushcraft survival world and it just never ending like all these gadgets that they say you you know oh you need this you need this you couldn't carry them all on your back there's just so much right mm -hmm. so you really have to be judicious in your purchases and uh because i you know i don't have unlimited funds i'm on quite a tight budget so i've always been very careful and i and i learned on basic substandard stuff uh my first saw came from the dollar store for four dollars and i actually i keep buying them because they're great i give them to people um you know uh to start off with if if they're stuck i'll give them one of those now it's not folding it's not super light but it'll get the job done and that and that's the whole thing you know learning and then moving on and then i do a lot of research on what my next purchase is if i want to upgrade to a better knife a better saw a better tarp i do a ton of research and find out where i can best put my dollars yeah yeah and that that sounds like the kind of thinking that's the skill that you would definitely take out into the bush too right like you have to be maximizing what you're getting for everything you put into it. it's like the calories you're even putting into to doing what you're doing as well as like you know what do i need right now absolutely and and figuring out how you go about that so we sort of started off with that situation of getting dropped in the in the bush so let's let's say i guess let's get into that kind of a scenario what happens you're you're lost out in the woods let's say you got your five c's what's the first thing you're going to do let's just say uh i don't know <laughs> some kind of accident happened but you're okay you're all alone you're in the woods well how do, how do you go about it I'll you know, this is really interesting because a lot of people expect um, uh, a, a certain type of answer, but my my typical answer, and it's a bit of a smart-ass answer to this question, is get out. Get out. That's the, your priority. If you're truly in an emergency, is get home, right? Mm -hmm. So your, your calories are best spent taking provided you know where that walk is, is, you know, take the walk, get home, because things are only going to get worse. So, um, but yes, taking it on a, uh, the level that you're, you're talking that's, that's about. That's an excellent point, um, though, sorry, um, I'm cutting you off again, sorry, but that, that's an exactly yeah, excellent no. point. Like, you kind of said it's a smart-ass answer, but that's actually really the, the first thing that you should think of, because as soon as you started saying that, I'm like, Actually, I'm a dumbass for not thinking. Don't think you're going to have to live out here in the bush. Think about how the hell do I get the hell out of here? First things first, of course. So continue. Yeah, no, it's not a dumbass answer because, you know, that's what happens when. So I've been in situations where we're walking in the bush and I, I, I've never been 
truly lost. I, I have an excellent sense of direction. I grew up in the woods. The, 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 the few times where I've been slightly turned around is if I have somebody with me and it's like, oh, look at this, look at this, and we get a little distracted. Now, you know, if you've walked in, you can walk out. The problem is people don't take a minute to go, okay, the, the, the panic sets in and that's when people make poor decisions. So if you do a little bit of training on um, basic navigation, um, navigating without a compass or just understanding the lay of the land using your ears, your eyes, you can often see or hear something because most people don't walk out into the woods quite that far that they can't maybe hear a railway or, you know, cars or a highway or that type of stuff. You know, if you're going out on a big hike, it may be on a trail. So those situations where, you know, you get turned around, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, don't move. Take a break, take a breath, don't panic, think it out. Because often the, the, the solution is will present itself right there if you if you don't take further steps to make it worse, right? And that's, you, you hear a lot of these survival stories where, mm, I, 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 I wouldn't want to guess, but I would say 95% of the time it's user error, right? You've, you haven't taken the time to plan properly, you haven't brought enough of what you need with you um, you don't have the skills to find, let's say you run out of food. I mean, in the summertime, the forest is full of food. You just need to know what it, you know, what it is, right? So learning some basic foraging skills really goes a long way. Uh, because again, your biggest toolbox is here and you need to keep this calm, intact, fed, low blood sugar really messes with you. You, you get anxious you get okay um you make bad decisions so i got off track there i'm not sure where i was going with that but yeah no, we good were, words of wisdom yeah <laughs> no, we were you were we were talking about the things that you need to consider when you get into a situation where you might have to be thinking about survival and you you went through like you said you got to think all right how do i get out of this situation when you're in the situation you know how do i keep calm and then you start kind of going through your priority list of of how you go about it yeah so maintaining your core temperature, a, a lot of people think food right away. It's usually the last thing you worry about. First thing you worry about is making sure if you're going to have to do some, uh, we call it inconvenient camping. If you're prepared, it's inconvenient camping, really. Um, if you're not prepared, then you, you're risking getting into a true survival situation. So always maintaining your core temperature because even in the summertime at night, you can suffer from hypothermia. Um, you know, there's, there's an expression that cotton kills and there's, it's a little controversial because some people will be like, well, not really because in the summer, but if you start sweating, cotton will hold all your, the water and, you know, it, and if you're not in a warm situation, well, it's just going to cool you off. Right. So, um, I, st again, I still wear wool in the summertime, um, I'll bring my, for my overnights, I'll just bring my wool uh, leggings, my unders, and a wool shirt, and that's what I'll sleep in if I'm using my sleeping bag, my wool blanket, or whatever it is. So 
so yeah, if shelter, I, it, it all depends on how many calories you have to put out. So almost anybody can spend just a night in the woods, really. Like, you know, we have so many beautiful pine trees out here. It, it's not unreasonable to lean up, lean your back up against a pine tree and let it shelter you. Put your coat over yourself, get some rest. Do you want to spend three, four hours collecting sticks to make yourself essentially that? It, you know, I guess it depends on the temperature. Everything is very situational, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if you bring uh, that pocket tarp, like I said, it's a five, it's a few minutes deployment if you've got it prepared properly with a ridge line and some tie outs and you practice, you know. So a lot of people will build these 72 hour kits or bug out bags or whatever and let them sit in the basement or by the door and never use them. And the more, one of the things you asked me was how did I kind of get going into this and what brought me in this direction. Yeah. Bug out bags were one of the first things that, that I did get into. And the more I learned, the more I realized that half the stuff that, um, that my friend was putting in these bags made no sense. Um, putting cans in a bug out bag is like, you're putting rocks on your back. Really? There's, um, you know, dehydrated, freeze-dried, there's all kinds of food that weighs almost nothing, and then all you have to do is procure your water, right? And in Canada, we're very lucky that our water is quite good. So a basic filter, um, you know, a life straw, a Sawyer, those are available in the States, but, you know, even filtering through a bandana is likely going to get you what you need here in Canada, barring, you know, some less desirable water sources but um so yeah it, it, having a little tarp ready with you solves your uh shelter situation it shelters you from the wind and the rain um so we've got maintaining core temperature uh water water is critical you know um you need and, and again in Canada we're really lucky finding water is pretty easy um, after that you know you might consider reaching in your pockets see if you've got you know a granola bar or having you know so I always have um, my cook kit uh, I always have a soup uh, some dried fruit I you know I always put a collection of different things I have a ton of those backpacker meals that you just add hot water to they're the bomb, right? They're expensive, but they're awesome for like overnights, couple of days, backpacking stuff, you know? Um, and then you need to know, uh, I don't know if you're injured, you're looking for rescue. So creating, um, signaling. So you're looking at your mirror, your color, uh, you, you want a colorful bandana with you all the time so that if you can, you know, create a flag and then make a fire, make a signal fire with, uh, you know, you've got your fire, but then you're putting on green stuff to create smoke. Hmm. Right. So if you can't get out, you're trying to get people's attention as much as possible. Hmm. Right. Um, 
you, you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned that, um, how a lot of people will often put a lot of stuff in their bag and not use it. And so what I'm getting, what I'm hearing you talk is that you're using a lot of this stuff very often. Like you're practicing a lot of these skills all the time, right? So you, you must spend a lot of time outdoors kind of like, I mean, doing this all the time, right? Like, so it's, I mean. That's An inordinate amount of time in the woods <laughs> oh, no it's good you're, like, you're always ready right and then like you always know these yeah. skills which is which is really the preparedness the ideal right like it's you're just always prepared it's it's it, it actually really makes sense it's it's a it's a real privilege of our modern life that you don't have to be prepared for anything we're uh as at the mercy of everything as we've ever been probably I, I think you're you're really right. Um, there is a, a big movement of of people after 9/11, um, after the big power outage we had. I think it was in 01. I can't remember. Four days. You guys remember that? I remember uh, we were at a, a baseball tournament in Sulukout, and the power was out for four days. Uh, Stompin' Tom was supposed to come and play, and it got canceled because the power was out. <laughs> the Blueberry Festival of Sulukout. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, and and people, you know, that wasn't too bad because people, you know, started eating the food out of their freezer, going outside doing barbecues. I remember we had a guy with a guitar and we did okay. I mean, it was four days, right? But once things, and, and you know, we didn't have uh, the COVID situation yet. And uh, now I think people are starting to see that things can go wrong and that, People who are, see, I consider myself kind of a, a survivalist, bushcrafter, a little bit with the backpacking and, and, and prepping, you know. And um, I think it used to be that people who would say, oh, I'm a prepper, and I have resisted that term because it kind of um, evokes uh, images of guys that you know make bunkers and go hide and you know have their guns ready and stuff like that but truly all these things have a basis in reality in situations that have happened in the world right we're really really privileged in canada and uh north america to you know to have such such lives such privileged lives really mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, after all of these things that have happened in, in the last uh, 20 or so years, um, people are starting to see that, you know, being prepared is, is not a, uh, a conspiracy thing. It's, it's necessary, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. like I have a lot of friends who say, oh, you know, if the, if the uh, SHTF happens, then uh, I'll be coming to see you. I'm like, well, you better bring something to the table because we, you know, and the whole image of, oh, I'm going to get my bug out bag and I'm going to go to the to the woods. I hear so many people say that and I say, okay, what are you going to do when you get there? Well, I'll hunt and I'll fish. When's the last time you had a fish on the line? When's the last time you actually shot an animal? When's the last time you processed that animal? And most people have never done it, but they expect that they're just going to go out there and do it. Hunting and trapping isn't easy. You need, you know, 10 traps to be able to maybe catch something in the right circumstances if you've been doing it. Um, it's, again, practicing is, is everything.
because then you get to see what works and what doesn't. And everybody's individual as well. So there's uh, there's that. Because what, what I can live without, somebody might not be able to. So there's also that little luxury factor when you're getting your, your stuff together. Um, like my pack is... Including water and food is 25 pounds or less. Like a lot of people will put these 60, 80 pound packs on. How far are you going to go? Mm -hmm. If you don't rock on a daily basis, like a soldier and, and mm -hmm. know how far you can go, where are you going to go? You're going to be dropping those cans out of your pack so fast. <laughs> You'll be dropping food along the way and stuff. So it, it really does pay to look for the lightest gear possible um that you can work with because i mean there's people out there who do the um you've heard of the um pacific crest trail and the no um appalachian trail it goes all the way from florida to just about canada like there's people that hike this they take a few months out of their lives and six months or whatever and they'll do the whole trail now some of these people will get down to a 10 pound pack weight for that whole trip Oh, wow. And and their resupply will be um, mailed to certain points along the trail. This this trail has been traveled for probably about 100 years. And uh, I, I don't quote me on that. It's maybe longer. Um, but, yeah, it's pretty famous, and people do it all the time. And I had a friend the other day say, oh, you know, I'd like to do that. And I said, and I'm not throwing shade at the trail or anybody goes on it but i said as a canadian you would probably be disappointed because there's so much traffic on it and i've i've heard a bit of a few stories about people because you have to go to the bathroom you have to you know do your business and people don't necessarily do what they're supposed to do so there's a little bit of um yeah a factor in the woods right and we're not used to that as Canadians. We walk into the woods. We don't, you know, we don't come across human waste. We don't come across, you know, all this you know, super well-traveled path that's got areas all over where people have put their tents down. And it's just, and yes, it's, I, I've seen some of the footage, beautiful mountains and all different stuff. But like I said, when we go to the woods in Canada, we're, we're going where, there's nobody, there's nothing except us and the animals, right? So I don't know. I I, I may be speaking out of turn, but no, I know from what for, I gather. Like when I was growing up, when we ever went camping, it was usually we would, there was some, we knew where a lake was somewhere and we would just find a lake to go by and just set, find somewhere to throw a tent and just set up a tent. It was never like a camping ground. Like I remember like there was a, a provincial park we would go to to swim because it had a beautiful spring fed lake. But, like, the idea of camping there always kind of felt to me like, like, my like, oh, that's what city people do, you know? Like, camping is like you go out in the woods somewhere. Like, you, I, granted, we wouldn't be, like, way out in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, you just go find a lake and you just throw up a tent. That was just what we always did. And, uh, yep. yeah. And, like, I don't know. It's it's kind of funny because, like, in a way you could think about it and you, you could worry uh, all day long about what about animals and this, that, and the other thing. But, like, we always just kind of, I don't know, set up a tent and... Everything kind of just leaves you alone for the most part. 
when you would go on those trips, did you ever think of those five C's? Like, did you always have those kind of things with you? Yeah, we had Corona, we had coolers, we had cheese. <laughs> Most people who camp are car camping. And when you have conveyance, you get to take your luxuries. And most people are way overpacked for, for camping. Yeah, uh, uh, guilty. I, I used to pack my car full and now my car is full of all different <laughs> varieties of gear but once I put my pack on see you later I'm I'm you know I'm gonna go have some fun I'm gonna like I hammock camp mostly so I I'm rarely on the ground so it saves my back as well <laughs> but uh, that that's a whole nother you know great topic for uh, another type of you know camping well, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of makes sense because what we would do when we were camping too is if, like when we started out, most of the time we were just sleeping right on the ground, on like in a sleeping bag. And then later on we had uh, the air mattresses. That's what kind of made it real nice. Then you were just sleeping on an air mattress and it was almost like you were sleeping over at a friend's house. It was no real different. So then oh, the, ha yeah. the hammocks, yeah, like you mentioned that uh, you could use like even a wool blanket. So do you do you carry like a specialized hammock or do you use like a wool blanket that you, you've modified? Or? No, I wouldn't want to ruin my wool blanket. That, that would be more of an emergency situation. If you were lucky enough to have a wool blanket, you could get off the ground if it was really damp or cold. Um, cause really the ground, there's, there's different types of, uh, ways you know, you can have your heat sucked from you, right? Um, you, you've got conduction, which is literally laying against a cold surface and it makes you cold. Um, you've got radiation, right? So um, heat radiates towards you to heat you up or evaporation. So if you're, if you're all sweaty, you know, you're, it's evaporating and it's making you cold. So those are all the different ways, you know, uh, your heat can be sucked from you and then that's what you've got to maintain and you know and and that's the balance right how many calories are you putting out versus what you're going to get from the activity that you're doing so you know if you're just going to mindlessly decide okay I'm going to make a shelter and then have nothing to eat after you're going to be pretty you know pretty worn out because it takes takes a good amount of energy to build a decent shelter yeah yeah so I just wanted to kind of ask you a little bit more. So I know that you mentioned that you've built a wigwam. Did you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I've been lucky enough to have access to a property that's right here in town, but it's it's woods. Um, uh, it's the um, Dalron owns it and they gave me permission. I was actually mushroom hunting on the property um, and then when I started wanting to teach survival and bushcraft, I was looking kind of for a space. Cause I mean, I've, I've taught in a yoga studio, the five C's class. Um, I've taught at, um, are you familiar with seasons pharmacy? Yeah. Yep. So I've taught my class there at, at seasons, which is a great space. Um, but you know, once once you get past that kind of little beginner thing, you want to be able to have resources. You want to be able to teach people in situ, right? So, so uh, I wanted a space uh, to be able to kind of get away and do my my projects and stuff like that. And I thought it would be really neat for um, for, for almost like a mini school. So I built uh, my wigwam. 
at first I had ideas of how it would work, stick sticks in the ground and join them together. Then I did a bit of research on the, the traditional ways of doing it and it, it opened my eyes. I learned a lot and uh, it's, I built it last, I think I started mid-summer and I, because I was on a different, uh, it wasn't my land, I only used a tarp to cover it because I couldn't justify uh, girdling the trees that were on that property it would have taken quite a bit to cover it in bark and whatnot so uh but the structure took me uh, i found a grove of uh, poplar uh that were uh, saplings and they're they're too close together so taking some of them out because the, they're going to choke each other out anyways so i was able to to access quite a few perfect saplings um and I think it took me about 60 saplings to create. And it's got a 13 foot diameter. Um, and yeah, I can I can send you some pictures and whatnot afterwards, but uh, it was it was really a learning experience. And uh, it's really solid, it's great. I love it. <laughs> so you said you did a bunch of research on it. So yeah, tell us about uh, wigwams. So like what would have been the normal application? Is this like something that you're picking up and moving? Is this more of a permanent style res uh, re uh, yeah, residence, I guess. Uh, so, and, and who's using them and that kind of thing. So can you get into that a little bit? For, for mine or how wigwams are typically used? Uh, so yeah, I guess how wigwams were typically used or what you found when you did your research. Yeah. Um, so wigwams are not transportable because of the way you create them. Um, you actually pound a hole in the ground with a, with a sharpened stick of the same diameter. And, um, then you, you stand your poles in those holes and then join them together. See, when I had, before I did my research, I tried a few join them together first and I thought I would just stand them up and then tie them together but they kick out and and they make a weird structure shape so when you put your poles in the ground like this they stand straight up then you grab them with a you, you tie a, a string to the the highest point so you can pull them down to bend them and that way your walls tend to stay more um more vertical so then you get more of a dome shape rather than this type of thing where it'll kick out and fall out. So, um, yeah, typically they were used as a single family all the way up to, you know, multiple families. Um, they're, so once you get past a certain uh, size, the, the trees are only so tall. So you can only go so much in diameter. So what they do is they'll make them longer with a lot of arches and and you'll have you know a longer uh, section so you can have multiple families and they put benches around the outside and so a, a single dome will have typically one fire in the middle and you'll have the hole at the top uh, and you can put a, a cover over it if you're not uh, not using the fire and then for a longer one, you may have two fires or even three. It depends on how they decided. Um, yeah, you'd have uh, people sleeping on the benches. Um, 
and there's different styles of them. Some of them will be um, summer where they've got grass mats around the outside so that they can keep cool in real heat. And I'm, I'm not talking about in Canada, I'm talking about further south where, you know, there's significant heat. So they'll, they'll use the exterior in, um, in grass mats. And then for uh, colder times or colder climate, uh, they'll cover them with, um, you know, thick bark, bark sections with much bigger, you know, they'll girdle the entire, uh, you know, eight or 10 foot section of bark and then overlap them like shingles. It's, it's pretty ingenious and it works pretty well. So what have you been doing with your wigwam? I'm sorry. What have you been doing with your wigwam? Me, I use it. Uh, I've slept in it. I, I actually put a wood stove in it. I have, um, they're kind of like a portable wood stove, like for a, for a hot tent. Um, so it's, it's only a barrel about maybe 16 inches diameter at best. Yeah, something like that. And then um, it's got little legs and a really tall chimney. So I created a little stove jack so that I could put the chimney out the wigwam. And uh, it's uh, I slept in it uh, January 4th this year. So, and it was quite comfortable. I mean, I have, um, I have, I made a bunch of grass mats as well. So I was able to have that, uh, you know, the, the, the protection from the conduction from the ground. But since my wigwam was up and it had been covered with snow, it was quite well insulated. So I didn't have too much trouble with the cold. Um, and then I've had, oh, geez, I've had eight kids and three moms in it sitting for a lesson. Um, I have a big stump in the middle where I use for doing different uh, projects with wood or knives or um Back in, uh, I believe it was March, we did maple syrup. So I did a lesson on um, making maple syrup every year. Well, this is my third year. I, um, I've i been making maple syrup small scale. I only get two or three liters, but uh, it's a fun project. It's a true labor of love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that education aspect of what you're doing now and what you kind of hope to do with it? Yeah, that's that's my my real goal. I've been teaching classes kind of sporadically. I'd I'd love to be able to um, take small groups out on outings and adventures. The only thing is, um, I learned a little bit of lesson uh, about a year or so ago, where I realized that I have to ensure. Um, that I'm comfortable with everybody's skill level, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to put anybody or myself at risk. So I, I want to, you know, make sure that the skills are there and that I'm comfortable with everybody's, not to mention not everybody has kit, right? So I try and encourage people just to get basic stuff, even from around your house that's, uh, and put together your kit so that you can come out and have a good time and be comfortable. Um, like you don't want to put people in a situation like they do on a loan. That's not reasonable. You you have to get there, right? Mm -hmm. um, what was the other part you asked? 
Um, I think a little bit about what you hope to do with the education. I know that you mentioned you're uh, doing some education with some homeschool kids and that you kind of want to get into the school. So do you want to touch a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. That That's that's dear to my heart. That's what I'd really love to do is to get into the schools. I have a few contacts that have mentioned it, but I think um, it'll require dealing with maybe bureaucracy. I don't know, because in this day and age, um, handling, uh, you know, teaching kids how to handle knives a lot of people will go oh no you can't you know i'm like i have my son was four years old and you know i had a knife that was very similar to this one and i taught him how to use it and he followed the rules or he didn't get to use it it was always clearly right in front of me so it was mom can i use your knife i would hand it to him properly and he would use it right in front of me uh making sure all his you know safety protocols were being used and then you know he would hand it back to me properly and if he didn't then he didn't get to use it you know uh for a bit you know so those those were the rules and a lot of kids to to get those you know adult things that are kind of a little bit neat or different they tend to follow the rules because they want to be able to do it so uh i I think it's a matter of um, reassuring parents as well that I have their kids' safety in mind. And so far, I've been very lucky. Um, like I said, my homeschool group, these kids tend to be a little bit more capable. They're doing things all the time at home. They're doing, they're given a little bit more, I don't know, practical skills, maybe. I'm not sure how to uh, say that. I don't want to offend anybody who... who who isn't but um yeah so getting around you know knives and fire <laughs> um but it's it's doable so i'd love to get into the schools uh even uh the college there's there's so much need for having kids out in the woods in nature it's it's good for the soul it's, yeah it's good for anxiety. It's yeah. Yeah, no. And, and that kind of brings it all kind of uh, around in a nice circle. So uh, I'd like to say thanks for talking to us. I feel like we, we learned a lot and uh, it, it was, it was great to know what you're doing and stuff like that. So if, uh, if anyone wanted to get in contact with you and, and learn some of your skills or, or uh, maybe follow on your page or anything like that, how would they uh, get in contact with you? I do have a Facebook page. It's called Bare Necessities. Um, my my biggest struggle is an online presence. So if anybody uh, is a student and they want credits or anything like that to be able to help me with an online presence, I'm in desperate need of it because I don't want to be online. I want to be out in the woods. Um, it, it's I find it a little bit frustrating to manage because you have so many things you have to access, like instagram and youtube and all these things and I'm, I'm almost fighting against that but to to be in business in this world you need an online presence so it's a, a bit of a catch-22 but uh yeah bare necessities is what i have or they can just reach out to me on my facebook um uh, through messenger or just on facebook melanie de Bagira. 
and uh, that's D-E-B-A-G-H-E-E-R-A. And uh, that's pretty much it. Thank you so much for having me. There's, I feel like um, there's, there's, I've kind of like bounced around all over. I wish there was a little bit of a clearer, cleaner picture, but yeah, that's not necessarily what this life is about, right? <laughs> Well, it was really interesting, and I feel like there's probably more that you have to offer, too. So, I mean, there's not saying we can't have another interview in the future where we got maybe you want to do a deep dive on a specific topic, and we can really kind of get into the finer details on uh, some survival skills in particular. Sure, and it also helps me uh, become a better teacher as well. Perfect. Well, perfect. Well, thank you, and take care. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you.